Welcome to the 180 Ministry Podcast. Please check us out at the1-80.org. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And f- All right, amen. Signs of the times, right? So as we look at this, we're gonna see a few things here. And as I mentioned in my prayer, and also as Elder Russell mentioned, this is the chapter covering the signs of the times. Now, what we're gonna see today is that there are signs that take place in the end, but there is one sign that brings the end. So there are, as Elder Russell so pointedly put it, there are signs of the times, meaning signs of the end time, and that there are, and then there are, is one sign, I should say, that brings about the end of all things. Unless that sign is given, friends, the end does not come. And we'll be covering that next week. But what we want to notice today is that there are signs that transpire all around us that shows us, hey, we are living in the end of the world. So does that make sense? All right, praise the Lord. So there are signs of the time, signs of the end, and only one sign that brings about the end. So Matthew chapter 24. Now Matthew chapter 23 in context, Jesus has just rebuked he has been, and this is so amazing. When I look at Jesus' life, I'm like, wow, this, this God of mine is so wise and so powerful. Because Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 23, he comes out and he completely blasts the religious leaders of the day, right? He says, it's called a chapter, some people call it the chapter of the seven woes. Because Jesus Christ actually calls out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and he rebukes them back to back to back. But one of the things I noticed is that many Christians today, and I was like this, I was like this. God had to really break me in order to help me not to do the opposite of what Jesus did, right? So Jesus Christ, for the majority of his his experience and his ministry, especially his public ministry, Um, By this time, Matthew 24, it's almost coming to the point of coming to a close. But I want us to notice something. How many, in Matthew chapter 23, it's also done in Luke, um, forgot the specific chapter, but it's done in Luke and Mark as well. You have these seven woes where Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees. But if I were to ask you how many Matthew 23s are there, how much will you say? especially in Matthew, just the book of Matthew. Let's forget about the other Gospels. But if I asked you how many Matthew 23s are there, and this is not a trick question. (laughs) There's only one, right? There's only one Matthew 23 that I know, that that we know of, right? Now, the reason I say that is because when people look at Matthew 23, this chapter of insane rebukes, powerful, intense rebukes, they take this and they make it the very foundation of their entire ministry to others. Do you see the problem? Right? 
Yes, right? So Jesus Christ, in his ministry to Israel and his ministry to the entirety of Israel, which would include the scribes and the Pharisees, he sought to reach them as well. He didn't wake up every day and every moment where there was a rebuke to be made, came out and completely blast people. That was not the foundation of his ministry. Now, did Jesus, let me say it this way, are there multiple ways to rebuke? Yes. There were times when he did it very kindly through parables. Times when he did it very gently through other means. Times when he did it another way where the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew he was talking about them, but the people didn't know. He was very strategic. Inspiration actually tells us in the powerful book, Steps to Christ, that Christ never refused to speak the truth. Even at times, he was very, but she said, the next part of the statement says, but he was always, he exercised the greatest tact and wisdom in what he said. It said, even when it came to the point of Matthew chapter 23, when he gave those rebukes, there were tears in his voice because he did not delight. That was not something he liked doing. And so this is crucial for us. The reason I bring this up, friends, is because there are many who their attitude when it comes to dealing with certain situations that they think may be off. They take Matthew 23 and this is the way that they always rebuke. Not realizing that there is a time for Matthew 23 rebukes. Jesus waited until the very end when he realized the people are confused. They have these religious leaders who are telling them, hey, that's not the Messiah. Then you have me on the other hand, Jesus Christ is saying, he's saying, I'm trying to tell them I'm the Messiah, I'm the one that God sent. But these guys are continually pushing at me and the people are being established in confusion. And so finally, after all these years of dealing with that, not just from the time of his public ministry, but even from the birth all the way up to the crucifixion, Jesus finally said, all right, I've done it different ways. There were times when I was even silent. There were times when I did nothing. There were times when I gave gentle rebukes. There were times when my rebukes were so subtle, no one knew it except the group to whom it was targeted. All right, now it is the time to come and make an open rebuke. Friends, that is vital for us to ever remember. As we work with others, do not establish your entire ministry to others upon Matthew 23. Does that make sense? All right. It's crucial. As we seek to win souls, that's the reason I say this. As we seek to win souls, we must be wise in how we operate with others. So Matthew chapter 24, all right? So that's the context. So Matthew chapter 24, it says in verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came for to show him the buildings of the temple. So they're like, wow, this temple is glorious. Um, you actually read in history that as the sun went and it ricocheted off of the temple, it was beautiful for the eyes to behold, right? 
And so they're saying, Jesus, look at this temple. It's so amazing. And Jesus says to them, see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So in other words, what is Jesus saying is going to one day happen to the temple? Yes, it's going to fall. It's going to get destroyed, right? So he's prophesying the destruction of the temple. Now, to tell you how serious that kind of statement was, uh, and it's, not, it's nothing new, because was there a time when the temple was destroyed before? Yeah, right? Jeremiah prophesied, hey, if Israel does not turn to God away from these idols, we're not gonna, say, we're not gonna be able to say the temple, the temple. It's gonna get destroyed. And ultimately, the temple was destroyed. But the Jewish nation, forgetting that aspect of history, whenever anyone spoke against the temple in Jesus' day, it was considered, yes, sacrilegious, it was considered treason. So guess what the disciples do? It says in verse 3, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him how? Privately. Why? Because they don't want anybody else hearing Jesus using this kind of language, right? So it says, they came to him privately saying, now look at these three things that they ask him. Tell us, when shall these things be? That's when shall be what? The the temple destruction, right? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? That's the second coming. And the end of the world. So what Jesus is about to do here is that he's about to take these three questions because three of these questions, they take place at different points, right? The destruction of the temple is not the same as the end of the world. But in the minds of the disciples, they loved the temple so much and they elevated it in their minds so much that the destruction of the temple for them was what? The end of the world. That's how much they reverenced the temple. How could God allow his temple to be destroyed? They didn't realize that if he did not dwell in their temples, there was no purpose for a temple in Jerusalem. If God is not in the temple, there is no purpose for the temple, friends. Hence, the call to us is to allow Christ, by the Holy Spirit, to dwell in our temples. God has a temple on earth today. It is his church. And he says, I want to dwell in you to reveal my character through you to the world. So Jesus, what does he do? He takes the subject of the destruction of Jerusalem, ultimately by the Romans, and he makes it a parallel to how the end of the world will be. So he takes those three questions and he intermingles them, showing that how one will happen is how the other will take place. These take place at two different times in human history, but they are a parallel of one another. Does that make sense? Right? So in one event, we are seeing what's going to happen at the end of time. So Jesus says here, first thing he says, and I want us to look at this, it says, and Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man does what? 
So that means at the end of time, this is how Jesus starts it off. At the end of, the t- of time, there's going to be a lot of what? Deception. That's the first thing he says. There's going to be a lot of deception at the end of the world. And there's going to be a lot of deception even in your day. Take heed that no man deceives you. Now I wonder, what kind of deceptions will there be? And how can these deceptions happen? It says in verse 5, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Friends, has that been happening? I was mentioning earlier this week that there's a guy in um, Russia right now, along with many others, a guy in Russia, his name is Vasarian, and he claims actually to be the return of the Son of God. Now, it would be it would be one thing for a person to be that crazy and say something like that. But when it gets intense is when you have an entire village of over a thousand people following you. That's what's happening right now. As he gives these oracles that he believes he's getting from God, an entire village has been set up around this man and they are following him as Jesus Christ. People inside and outside of the village. And you have many others all over the world who are rising up, even as I speak, claiming to be the son of God. And people are following these people. Why? Because as it says here, take heed that no man deceives you. There's a lot of deception going around. Now, who can start off deception like this? How how can men get to the point where they're not deceived just in terms of calling themselves the Messiah, but in many other ways as it concerns the end of the world. I want you to hold your fingers in Matthew 24 with me, and I want you to go with me in the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to see the power at work here. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, and when you are there, say amen. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. It says there, Now the Spirit, the word is in caps there, so who's that? Holy Spirit, right? So now the Holy Spirit speaks expressly. That means he speaks clearly. That in the latter times, does anyone know what another word for the latter times is? The last days or the end time, okay? In the last days, some shall depart from the faith. But why? Because they are giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So we're realizing that there are two Spirits at work at the end of time. There's the Holy Spirit who's going to be at work along with holy angels who are also called ministering spirits in Hebrews chapter 1. And then you have what other kind of spirits? Deceiving spirits. Another word for them is demons, right? So demons will be at work in the world. These fallen angels will be at work in the world to deceive people into thinking, one, they're they're things that they're not, (laughs) making them think that they're the Messiah when they're not. And these people who usually arrive at that point, they die in that mindset. 
In other words, their conscience has been completely seared. It's completely gone. And so the result is not only are they deceived, but they deceive other people. And friends, there's not just deception as it concerns false messiahs, but deception as it concerns doctrine, deception as it concerns the teachings of God's word. All of this deception the enemy is using, fallen angels are using, to prepare the world for what we're going to be covering today and next week. Does that make sense? All right. So we're back in Matthew 24. Now, notice what it says. It says here in verse 5, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. We hear that today. But look, I want you to look at this. In light of all of these signs of the times, you know what's interesting? Jesus says this. He says, see that you are not troubled, for these things must come to pass, but it's the end. No. <laughs> it says the end is not yet. That's why we have to be very careful. Many people are looking at these signs and they're saying, hey, it's over, it's done. But Jesus is saying, is it the end? No, not yet. So as we see the signs of the times, it's to let us know that we are living at the end of time. But these signs, while it lets us know that we're living at the end of time, is not the sign that brings the end. Does that make sense, friends? This is vital for us to understand. Even Jesus. I, I never even realized that. I just went back a few weeks ago and I read it and I was like, whoa, even Jesus is saying, not yet. There's something that has to happen. And when this thing happens, that's it. All right? So it says here, the end is not yet, for nation shall rise against nation. There's more to happen. Now, nation shall rise against nation. I looked up the word for nation here, and the word is ethnos, from where we get ethnicity. So ethnicity would rise up against ethnicity. So we would have ethnic tensions. But then Jesus also says, not only that, kingdom against kingdom. So that's the next one. So in other words, when you say kingdom, what you're talking about is now you're outside of the religious domain. You're talking about the political arena. So there will be not only ethnic tensions, there will be political tensions. And there shall be famines. Is that happening? Pestilences? Is that happening? That's what we're seeing in our world right now. So there's ethnic tensions, there's political tensions, there is famines, there are famines, pestilences, or plagues you can call them, one of which we're experiencing right in our world right now, and earthquakes in diverse places, meaning in different places, various places, places that you would not even expect it to take place. And then it says, notice this, verse 8. Now, question for you, who in the audience has another translation other than King James? Is anyone? All right. What do you have, Sister Sharon, for verse 8? Okay, so you have sorrows. Okay, I have the same thing. Now, the word there, sorrows, is actually the word birth pangs. All right? It actually means birth pangs. So it's giving you the picture of a woman on the verge of giving birth. Now, the reason that this is crucial is because 
Many times you hear people say, and I hear people tell me that all the time, sometimes you're on the street and you're doing evangelism and you're handing out a track, and as you hand out the track, and you say, they say, what is this about? They don't touch the track, they just say, what is this about? I'm like, okay, so it's about the end of the world and, and it's just explaining some of the events. And that person will say, why are you talking about this? Like, I've had my great-great-grandmother tell me about this. My grandmother tell, told me Jesus was coming. Was that? Well, my mother told me Jesus was coming, but he's not here. He's not here yet. And the reason is, friends, because people have misunderstood the words of Christ. Jesus is not necessarily saying that these kinds of events will begin at the end of time. The key is verse eight, where it says, all these are the beginning of birth pangs. So in other words, when you look at a woman and the child as it develops in her womb, we call it, there's how many uh, trimesters? Three, right? First trimester, is it, is it, can it be intense at times? Yes. Second trimester compared to the first, is it more intense? Okay, you get closer to the, you're in the third trimester and you're on the verge of having that child. It's even more intense than the previous two trimesters. In other words, it comes to such a point where the frequency in pain is so intense that it almost becomes unbearable. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that these events and these signs will start at the end of time. They've always been happening. But what he's saying is that these events will intensify in frequency. That's right. They will start going up. And friends, statistically, this has been proven. That the events that we're mentioning here, especially as it concerns natural disasters, these things have risen to an all-time high more than previous generations. So what we, have to, what we have to realize now is, whoa, this is a fulfillment of what Jesus told us in the scriptures. So what we are looking at here is we're seeing, okay, so there'll be deception. Now you remember, who did we discover is leading men to be deceived? Satan and his fallen angels, right? The spirits speak expressly that in latter times, demons shall cause men to be seduced, right? So fallen angels, evil angels are doing a work in the world to deceive the masses. All the while that this is happening, other events are taking place as well. We're seeing that there's wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, Kingdom rising against kingdom, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in diverse places. It intensifies in its frequency. Evil angels behind the scenes. Now, as this happens, I want you to look at this. Verse 9 tells us something very interesting. It says, once these things happen and the world is going through this chaos, notice false Christs in verse 5, contextually they arise in times of verses six and seven. Do you see that? So false Christs arise in times of crisis. Don't forget that, right? Verse five, Jesus says, 
People arise claiming to be me. Verse six and seven, chaos. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, <laughs> pestilences, famines, earthquakes, diverse places. Now you tell me, friends, this is a question I want to place to you guys. Why do you think false Christs arise in crisis? What do you guys think? Okay, they're looking for answers, right? So they're looking for something, they're looking for answers, they're looking for hope. Why is this happening? And so this is why deluded men take an opportunity as they themselves are deluded to bring a delusion to people of hope. And so people, what do they do? Because they're so desperate for it, they follow these individuals. Now, don't forget that because next week we're going to find out that there's coming a time. See, it's one thing when people, friends, when men rise up and even women at times rise up claiming to be the son of God reincarnate. That's one thing. But what happens when Satan does it? That's another story. <laughs> so you don't want to miss next week. We're going to see Satan when the ultimate crisis hits. He's going to come on the stage. When that happens, friends, oh, it's going to be intense. All right? So this is why we have to know the word of God today. But what happens when, these cri when this crisis happens? Verses 6 and 7, the world is going through chaos. Verse 8, it tells us this chaos intensifies in its frequency. Verse 9, I wonder who's going to be blamed for this chaos. Verse 9 tells us, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of, whoa. So there's coming a day when how much of the world will hate those who stand for God? All the world. Can you imagine that? I mean, when I read this stuff, I get excited, but it's really, really not. It's really scary, actually. But if you're with God, friends, this is powerful stuff. The whole world turns against you. Not because you're not loving, but because in the face of divine pure love, the world feels a reproach in seeing that purity, right? So as we, we look at this, it says, you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake, and then shall many be offended. The word they're offended actually means to stumble. So they begin to stumble because the crisis is intensifying and the hatred now is being geared towards those who bear the name of Christ. Those who are not choosing to stand in light of that persecution now, the whole world turning against people, what will happen now? They will begin to stumble in their Christian experience, right? So they begin to fall, they become offended. The word there means to stumble. And not only do they stumble in their faith, but then they begin to betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, that word there, iniquity, the word is actually lawlessness. Do you see what happens here? <laughs> what happens here? is that the reason that love dies is because the very symbol of love is set aside. And what is that symbol? 
the law of God. The law of God, Jesus summarizes it in two commandments, which basically covers all ten. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That first part, love the Lord your God, that's the first four commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself is the last six. And so as these commandments now are set aside, which deal with love, what is the antithesis of love? What is the opposite, I should say? Let me, all right. That's the opposite of love. The opposite of love, you have hatred, right? Or selfishness. So it says, because iniquity shall abound, meaning the, the law of God has been set aside in the lives of people. What's that? A love of self, right, prevails now. And the love of many shall wax cold. So once God's love is now set outside of the picture and people embrace selfishness, hatred would be the way of the world. Friends, once that happens, the love of God wax cold in the hearts of people. The Bible warns, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now, if, verse 12, now I'm going to place a question to you guys. This is a, this is a, it's not a tricky question. But it's, it can be a little difficult, all right? Verse 12 says, because lawlessness shall abound. Now you remember we said the law is a symbol of, of God's love, right? That law is set aside, all right? So the world ceases to keep that law. They set aside the law. And then their love waxes cold. Verse 13 then says, but he that shall endure unto the end. Now, in verse 12, what did the world cease to endure in? Love, which in an even more laid out way is the keeping of what? God's law. Verse 13 comes and then Christ says, but he that shall endure, in what then? God's law. Obedience to God's commandments, right? So one group ceases to endure in obedience to God's commandments. The other group endures in it. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. Right, exactly. So now I want us to see this. So what are we seeing in the timeline then? And this is how we're seeing what? The battle is intensifying. And this battle will ultimately intensify to what the Bible calls the battle of Armageddon. So what we're seeing here, if we can lay it out, in the final events, sequence of final events, is that evil angels will be at work. As they set the stage, men are deceived. And the context in which this deception happens is in the context of natural civil and political upheaval. We saw that in verses six and seven. Now who's blamed for that? Who's blamed for the chaos? The saints, right? Verse nine, then shall they deliver you up. Now it's true, that happened in, in ancient Rome. During the days of the disciples, the whole then known world turned against the disciples as they were spreading the gospel. The gospel was going forth with power, 
but the leaders hated it. And so they persecuted God's people. So that literally happened in the time of the disciples. But Jesus is saying, hey, but I want my people to look further down to the end of time. And that stuff is going to be repeated again. So evil angels are at work deceiving the people in the context of natural, civil, and political upheaval. Who's blamed for that? The saints are blamed for the chaos in the world. And then there's going to be another event that will take place as this chaos is happening, and we'll cover that next week, which will lead to the Battle of Armageddon, or civil war. Friends, there's another civil war coming, and I'll show you guys this statement next week. There's a civil war coming, which will bring the climax, or will be a part of the climax of the final crisis that's gonna take place. So does this make sense? All right, evil angels at work in the context of natural, civil, and political upheaval, The result is that the saints are blamed for the confusion in the world. An event takes place during that time, which will really shake things up. And then the battle of Armageddon will take place. The battle of Armageddon, friends, this is not as we're going to see a battle in the Middle East. The battle of Armageddon is going to be when one day, finally, the entire world turns against God's people. Worldwide, Because you remember, God's people today is not in a geographical place. God's people, let me ask you, what is the criteria for being a son or a daughter of God? Faith in Christ, right? If you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. So that means Abraham's seed, it's not about being a literal Jew anymore. The question is, Paul asks, are you a Jew inwardly circumcised in heart? And friends scattered all over the world, there are spiritual Jews. Does that make sense? Therefore, the end-time battle of Armageddon is not going to be in Palestine. It's going to be all over the globe. Everywhere where you can find a son or daughter of God in Christ, there the war is going to be. And so God is showing us now, this is the layout. Christ is showing showing us this is the layout that will lead to the final crisis. But there are two major events that we're going to look at next week which really brings this about. And so I pray that today's message made sense. Jesus says, our last text will be this. Jesus states in Luke 21 and verse 28 that when you see these things, he says this is what we must do. Luke chapter 21 and verse 28. When you are there, say amen. All right, it says... Verse 28, it says, and when these things begin to come to pass, and Luke 21 is actually the Matthew 24 of the book of Luke. So it says, and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. In other words, all of these are signs that Jesus is coming. And so I pray, friends, that as we see the things taking place in the world today, that we will look up. 
and that we will know our Savior is telling us, hear spiritually the footsteps of an approaching God, that Jesus is coming. And what he is calling us to do, according to verse 13 of Matthew 24, is to endure until the very end. Endure. By faith in him, allowing him to put his strength in us. Because we cannot stand in and of ourselves. But as we are connected with Jesus, he will give us the infinite power to stand to the very end of the world. Or if he chooses to put us to rest before then until the very end of our lives. Let us have a word of prayer as we close. If it is your desire that you would be ready, as it is my desire, then I ask you to just raise your hands as we pray. Father in heaven, you see each hand raised here, every eye closed, heads bowed. We desire, Lord, to be ready for your return. We desire to be ready for the return, we should say, of your son in the clouds of glory. But Lord, we know that there is a work that must be done prior to this. And I pray, O oh God, that as we go through these next two months covering the theme of the second coming, that our hearts and minds might be strengthened and that we might in turn draw so close to Jesus that we will be ready when he comes. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please look us up online at the1-80.org and at the 180 YouTube channel. Please reach out to us with any questions or prayer requests. Until next time, thanks for listening.